If we have another year next year like we had last year, we'll be right back where we started from. You're gonna need several years of rip snort monsoons. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a fallacy that I think people make. They confuse weather with climate. We tend to be headed towards more extreme ends, you know, of the pendulum swinging. It all comes back to water and it just, that's what we don't have. That's the missing critical element right now in Arizona. That's from the voiceover in a news clip assembled by the Washington Post about drought in Arizona. And this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations. Welcome. Yes, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Now before I go any further, I urge you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Let's hear that entire audio from the Washington Post and you'll find a link for that in the show notes. We need it to seriously rain. We need a really good monsoon season. We need the spring rains. I think it'll stay in. We need a good snow melt. We, we just need water to come out of the sky one way or the other, basically. It is 8 o'clock. Let's see how long it takes us to get into this catchment. In early July, 90% of Arizona was in a drought. Water would be welcome anywhere in Arizona at this point. You know, more than 60% of Arizona is in that, that worst class of exceptional drought. The lack of a monsoon in 2020 and very little winter precipitation left the state extremely dry. This year has been the worst year, you know, these last two years, I should say, have been the worst year for water. We've seen very little to no rain. Without this water, animals are struggling to forage, reproduce, and survive. For the Arizona Game and Fish Department, this means one thing, hauling water. Everything gets dropped for water. Everything. It doesn't matter what we have planned or what we have scheduled. And it has to be that way. There's, there's really no other way around it. Um, otherwise, animals will die. I remember us going around rooster comb. During a normal drought year, the department and a team of volunteers will deliver between 700,000 and a million gallons of water. But by late July, they are already on pace to haul nearly 3 million gallons. This is the mountain range that we're going to be flying. So we're, our goal is to get around the backside of this. Um, we're actually almost there. Nathan Solomon and his colleague Austin Garcia are hauling roughly 7,000 gallons of water to the base of a mountain in San Simone, Arizona, east of Tucson. That's a pothole that we're going to fill up. So judging by the looks of that thing, there's a little bit clearer picture. So it doesn't have very much water in it. We'll keep track of how much water we fly, and then we'll take another picture. We'll take another measurement. We'll look, and then we'll kind of, it'll kind of give us a gauge on how much that pothole, pothole holds. That's hard to say. It's kind of the Band-Aid approach and, and the most drastic emergency measure to be water hauling. Um, a lot of that effort is through helicopter drops and so it's it's expensive it's logistically challenging 
it's you know labor intensive and it's not sustainable to that same level year after year after year after year. The department maintains roughly 3,000 catchments throughout the state. This week, Nathan will be driving over 1,000 miles to coordinate four water drops. I'm really hoping I don't have to do helicopter water hauls next week so that I can get to all the, you know, the drive-tos. I've got a lot of catching up to do. What was once a seasonal water hauling effort has now become year-round. Arizona has been in a drought for the last three decades, but the conditions over the past two years have been more extreme and are taking a toll on the landscape and the animals that live on it. Our desert-adapted animals and plants are now at that tipping point. They're, they're finding that crucial threshold where there may not be the easy recovery. We're losing cohorts of young animals that either, you know, mom and dad parents didn't breed or they didn't, if they did, then they didn't have enough uh, mass or weight or fat reserves uh, because of the poor habitat. Without rain, you don't get plant growth, and that's what animals eat. The consequences are going to be getting compounded as it goes if this weather pattern persists. Back in southern Arizona, a welcome sight. Thick clouds are developing to the north, and it smells like rain. It's probably getting too windy up there. I can see it's lightning and thunder way back behind us. So we're getting hit by a little thunderstorm cell here, and it's heading south. So it's gonna, it's all that's gonna come right, right through us, looks like. I mean, we need everything to start clicking again uh, in order to rebound and get right back to everything we were. And then hopefully it continues and we don't, we don't have back to back to back to years of, of what we've had the last basically 2020 and so far and, and until now. The storm passed with very little precipitation and helicopter operations resumed. Worry that another flood may strike with more storms in the forecast and the museum fire burn scar. But the following week brought massive monsoon rains, which soaked nearly every corner of the state. In Tucson alone, over five inches fell in the month of July. Based off of what we got just now, it probably buys us maybe a month. Yeah, we're not out of the drought status by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody thinks it's, it's over, but it's not. It was a break, is all it was. If we have another year next year like we had last year, we'll be right back where we started from. You're going to need several years of rip, snort, monsoon. So. And that's, you know, that's a fallacy that I think people make. They confuse weather with climate. We tend to be headed towards more extreme ends, you know, of the pendulum swinging. It all comes back to water, and it just, that's what we don't have. That's the missing critical element right now in Arizona. Let's listen now to an explanation as to why Australia's weather is what it is. Australia's highly variable climate is influenced by the broad patterns in the oceans around it and the atmosphere above it. Some of these patterns are not only more obvious than others, but also predictable. We call these our climate drivers. One of our strongest climate drivers is the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO. ENSO is a natural cycle in Pacific Ocean temperatures, winds and cloud. This influences climate right around the globe. In Australia, ENSO is often behind our climate extremes, 
from devastating floods to searing droughts. ENSO naturally swings between three key phases, La Niña, Neutral and El Niño. A typical ENSO phase starts in the first half of the year and lasts until the following autumn. Sometimes we can get the same phase for two or more years in a row. On average, it takes about four years to swing from El Niño to La Niña and back again. So what are these ENSO phases and how do they impact Australia's climate? Well, during the neutral phase, steady trade winds blow across the tropical Pacific from the east to west. These winds pile up warm water in the western Pacific. In contrast, water temperatures to the east are lower as the trade winds cause cool water to be drawn up from the deep. The temperature difference across the tropical Pacific Ocean causes air to rise to Australia's north and descend near South America. This creates a huge connected cycle called the Walker Circulation. We consider neutral to be the normal phase because we're in this state more than half of the time. While a neutral phase may bring more normal weather to Australia, droughts and floods are certainly still possible. When we move into a La Nina, it's a bit like the neutral phase has gone into overdrive. The trade winds blow harder, expanding the warm pool on the Australian side of the tropical Pacific and cooling the oceans towards South America. This increases the east to west temperature difference and makes the walker circulation even stronger and the trade winds blow even harder again. This is called a feedback loop and once it starts, we're locked into a La Nina until at least the following autumn. With the higher ocean temperatures, we get greater evaporation, more cloud and more rain in the Western Pacific. For Australia, this means a higher risk of widespread flooding, lower daytime temperatures and more tropical cyclones. On the other end of the scale, we have El Niño, which is almost the direct opposite of La Niña. During El Niño, the trade winds actually weaken or reverse, allowing warmer waters to drift back towards the east. The change in the ocean temperature patterns mean the walker circulation breaks down, resulting in even weaker trade winds and even more warming in the east. Once this feedback starts, El Niño has set in. With the warm water shifting east, the evaporation, cloud and rain follows, shifting away from Australia. That means a greater risk of drought for northern and eastern Australia, higher temperatures and more heat waves, clearer nights and a longer frost season, and fewer tropical cyclones. While there are scientific definitions for El Niño and La Niña, in reality, no two events and no two sets of impacts are exactly the same. We also know some impacts will emerge as an ENSO event is developing, and some will persist even if an El Niño or La Niña never fully forms. The Bureau updates the status of its ENSO tracker whenever an event may be on the horizon, so you can keep well ahead of the game. Understanding ENSO is a big part of understanding our climate, so stay up to date with our fortnightly ENSO wrap-ups and, of course, watch our Climate Outlook videos. You'll find a link to that the new daily story in the show notes, along with a 10 news film clip. The story is heatwaves in Europe, Asia and US give a scary taste of what's to come. Next, we have a story from the Melbourne Age, and it's by Benjamin Priest, Rachel Dexter, and Jewel Topsfield. It has the headline, Impossible to Endure a Property. 
how climate change will impact your suburb or town. And the story begins. Southbank, Docklands, Elwood, Lakes Entrance and Queenscliff are among the Victorian suburbs and towns at the highest risk of water inundation by 2040 due to climate change. The areas of Victoria most at risk from rising sea levels and storm surges were identified in research that raises questions about whether homes, roads and businesses should be relocated in the face of encroaching water. Southbank is the worst affected place in Victoria, with 16,646 properties labelled high risk, more than a third of all properties in the suburb. Docklands is the next highest, at 3,270 high-risk properties. The Bayside Council of Port Phillip is heavily exposed to climate change, with a further 723 properties in South Melbourne, sixth worst, and 556 properties in Elwood, ninth, at high risk of coastal inundation by 2040. In Port Melbourne, 11th, there are 444 properties under threat. Let us listen to another episode from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Houston's Ship Channel is a bustling corridor of industrial activity, with ships traveling from all over the world to the city's factories and fossil fuel refineries. But even in this petrochemical hotspot, nature has a foothold. Surprisingly enough, there was a lot of open green space. Anna Tapia is with the nonprofit Houston Wilderness. Her group partners on the Houston Ship Channel Trees Program, an effort to use this open green space for tree planting projects. One of the goals is to do forestation-style planting. So we're not just putting down 50 trees, 60 trees. We wanted to have a really large impact, and so we plant trees by the thousands. And not just any trees. The group focuses on more than a dozen species that they've dubbed super trees. These super trees, like live oak, river birch, and red maple, are native to the Houston area. They're also good at absorbing and storing planet-warming carbon dioxide, filtering air pollutants, and soaking up water so they can help reduce flooding in nearby communities. I'm passionate because these trees are going to be here way after my time on this earth, still making that difference, still collecting that CO2, and still making a huge impact. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. Come on, let's join me now as we shift to the Washington Post for a story by Scott Dance which has the headline, How California's Weather Catastrophe Turned into a Miracle. And the story begins with the dateline, Fresno, California. Californians were preparing for another year of unrelenting drought in 2023. Instead, they got months of incessant rain and some of the heaviest snowfall they've ever seen. They feared blasts of spring warmth that would quickly turn snow into floods, adding to the havoc from a series of winter storms. But until recently, temperatures remained mercifully cool, allowing for a slow and steady melt. The result? A return of water to California that has eased drought maps, poured into long dry irrigation systems, and raised expectations that, after months with water bursting from their gates, reservoirs will end, the summer melt fill the capacity. It has been a stark transformation, with arid landscapes and trickling rivers replaced by swollen lakes gushing waterfalls and snow-covered mountaintops. Instead of pumping groundwater to keep crops alive, 
Farmers have access to rooming canals carrying more water than they could use. What follows is the opening stanza of the podcast Climate One. You'll find a link to the entire event in the show notes. Let's have a listen now. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. Extreme heat kills more people per year than any other climate disaster. And it's a hidden threat, practically invisible compared to the torrential rain of a hurricane or drama of climate-fueled wildfires. Soaring heat caused by burning fossil fuels preys on the poor and exacerbates racial inequalities, revealing vulnerabilities in its wake. And there's a growing body of evidence that shows women and girls are disproportionately susceptible to heat health effects. That's right. Globally, women and girls represent 80% of climate refugees. They're more likely to be displaced, suffer violence, and die from natural disasters. Women get the short end of the stick in every way. And extreme heat is exacerbating and adding fuel to this profound inequality. That's Kathy Boffman McLeod, director of the Adrian Arsh Rockefeller Foundation Resilience Center. As temperatures rise, people get angry, more prone to fight. Gender violence increases and miscarriage rates go up. But Kathy says preventing heat deaths and other effects is possible. This is one of the most beautiful things about addressing this climate risk. You can solve this. People don't have to die from heat. The Arst Rockefeller Center has been funding chief heat officers throughout the world, people implementing projects to make cities more climate adaptive. Come on, let's shift now to a story from the Sydney Morning Herald, and it's by Nico Marley and Angus Dalton. The headline of the story is, The hottest July in 120,000 years. What's in store for Australia this summer? The story begins. This month is likely to be the hottest July the Earth has ever experienced in about 120,000 years, after a series of lingering heat waves seared the Northern Hemisphere, says one of the world's leading climate scientists, Professor Michael Mann. The unprecedented extreme weather emergencies provide a glimpse into Australia's near future and suggest the impacts of global warming might have been underestimated, he told this masthead. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, please don't forget to check out the show notes where you'll find links to all those stories I've mentioned, along with a few others. Also, I'd love to hear from you how you feel about this podcast, what you think about it, what you think I should be doing, who I should be talking to, what stories I should be following. So please contact me via email at r.mclean, the number seven, at iCloud.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, please feel free to share it with a friend, because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And finally, don't forget to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Now... Take care.